This is for the nerds, this is for the brainiacs, this is what we deserve. Go ahead and play it back, you ain't gonna touch me, you not gonna do nothing, you are not above me, I bet you wish you was me, I know that I know. What is poppin' everybody? And welcome back to another special episode of the Only Friends Podcast. Well, you know, it's me and my only friends, which includes, but is not limited to, my boy Hunt. What's poppin', Hunt? I'm doing well. I'm doing better than you, it sounds like. You oh, said you whatever. died this morning. I died this morning. Mm. Happens sometimes. He's whatever. been resurrected. It's okay. Yeah. yeah, the ghost of Connie is with us mm-hmm. now, so we're fine. What's he- poppin', Burke? Oh, you know, the usual. Uh, we're here. Early here. time slot. Uh, why are we here at the early time slot? Yeah, you're slot? here so early. Mm-hmm. Playing tonight, huh? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yep. Mm. I'll be playing, all right. Yeah, playing with your ding dong. <laughs> <laughs> Found me an off day. Uh, Got rugged from the Bally's game. Yeah. I, uh, I don't know what happened there. I like how you were like not sure if you were going to talk about this, and we just forced you to do it within like thirty <laughs> seconds of starting the podcast. Honestly, I'm fine for it, or I'm fine with it. I just uh, I'm trying to I'm trying to temper my shots fired. Um, <clears throat> Minimal shots fired, just a couple of shots. Yeah, I, I mean, I'm not I'm not that butthurt, to be honest. But uh, it's annoying because I'd given up my Bellagio seat mm-hmm. to ensure that I could play Bally's, and I rearranged my whole day. To play a five o'clock stream game that I don't give that much of a shit about playing on. Um, it just seemed like it was a decent lineup. One of uh, one of my favorite guys, Don Wynn, is in town. I think he's playing it. Uh, and then Persons is on it, obviously. Any chance I get to play with a man named Casino Eric, I would like to take the opportunity. But, you know, the game is the game. It is what it is. A lot of young super pros are going to be in the lineup. Excited to see Jeremiah get out there. Can I just ask, what's up with you always calling in persons? Uh, it's a Pittsburgh thing. <laughs> we put S's on everything. Uh, okay. It doesn't make sense to us. I don't know why. Uh, yeah. Mm-hmm. I, I really so it's like, you know, you know his name's not persons, well, but you always here's say the, thing. the S. Here's the thing, and this is no not slight. Not that he doesn't know. Uh, yeah, it's not that I don't know. <laughs> because here's the thing, and this is no slight to Eric, but uh, having a last name of person does not make a whole lot of sense. It's Swedish. Come on. Everything ends in son in Sweden. Okay, but it, 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 it's an actual... It doesn't make a, sense to you, but no, the rest of the world... No, it no, no. It actually means human. It, it, it's, it's a, it's a, it's it's a noun. Not in way. Swedish it doesn't. It means son of Per. His father's name was Per if he was living like 2,000 years ago. All right, well, let's make it sons of Per. <laughs> so that okay. we can delineate so he, he, between... He has multiple sons. <laughs> yeah, so that we can delineate between, uh, you know, the actual noun and mm-hmm. his last name. Okay. And that's the way I, this us is very American is. of you refusing yeah. to accommodate foreign languages. <laughs> right. Well, that's the way we work. Yeah, I guess it is. It's, uh, I, I pluralize everybody. Sean Winters, because winter mm-hmm. is a thing. But yeah. if you say Winters, now all of a sudden Joe it could Burrows. be a last name. Yeah, Joe Burrows. Casey so Pennies. Every, so Kittles. everybody's name who is also, the, the name Aldi's. is also a word, you just put an S on the end. Yeah, it's yeah. a proper noun thing. Like, especially like, yeah. um, like, like the store, like JCPenney. Yeah. We would say JCPenney's. 
we See, would that, say that to me makes Montgomery sense Wards. That to me makes sense because it's a store owned by yeah. J.C. Penney. Right. Therefore, it's apostrophe S. Mm -hmm. It's his store. Yeah. That Giant Eagles. <laughs> Calling American persons no, we don't doesn't, do that. Yeah, they doesn't do. compute for me. But we don't do that. But that's a, a pit. Sorry. A Pittsburgh thing is they, they say it's Giant Eagle is the grocery store, but they say Giant Eagles. Really? Yeah. I've never heard that. Yeah. Because it's Eagle. Yeah. Eagle. John Eagles. I, yeah. I, Steelers. Uh, I would like you to spend some time in Pittsburgh, Hunt. I, I would be interested mm -hmm. to do that, but like the way you guys talk about it, it makes it sound like it's this weird twilight zone that's totally different from the rest of America. It's it's, it's very great. interesting. I'll it be is, there next week. There There is a bit of a vortex that occurs there. <laughs> the uh, Pittsburgh vortex that just sucks you in. Yeah, well, I mean, the history of it kind of... Uh, I, I, I Let me put it this way. I would like you to spend some time there because I think it's a beautiful place during the summer, but sure. more importantly, and it's also very... It's incredibly deep in culture. Mm -hmm. Um, but more importantly, I would just want you to study the, the area a little bit. Okay. It, it really is kind of this fascinating confluence of people who migrated to New York in the, you know, late 1700s, early 1800s mm -hmm. that are all coming from different areas in Europe, then started to travel West and got caught up in like, you know, they settled basically either on farmland or mm -hmm. for the coal mines and steel mines and, you know, became these blue collar workers. Yeah, see? <laughs> wow. What, what would you call it? Or, I wouldn't sorry, call it a steel sorry. mine. Steel, steel. You know, mining for that steel. Steel, <laughs> <laughs> steel mills. Dig, digging in the ground, hoping, hoping to find some steel. Steel mills. <laughs> it didn't uh, even dawn on me that, it, that I said, said mines, it. Yeah. I even repeated it. It still didn't dawn on me. <laughs> what would you call it? <laughs> That's uh, really didn't, didn't even register. But, yeah. but from that, like... <clears throat> was this see new york is so big that everybody could still have their pocket right mm -hmm. and I, I don't think that like the culture itself kind of became this melting pot and there was a big blend and honestly it's probably a lot less homogenous than pittsburgh mm -hmm. but <clears throat> pittsburgh's so small that all of those little pockets of ethnicities had to eventually overlap right and from mm -hmm. it came this bastardized language of italian like first generation Italians, Greeks, Polish, all Slovak, yeah, yeah, and they Hungarian. just they all just came together and said like, how do you say the plural you? How do yeah. you say the and it just landed on yins, <laughs> <laughs> and like you know we created this entire language for things that the rest of America just call their normal normal words, mm -hmm. but we have this weird slang mm -hmm. like a shopping cart is a buggy, and I'm sure that has part to do with you know being an amish country and part to do with yeah. just it not would, being able to say shopping it cart. would be fascinating to for hunt being a language mm -hmm. expert to, to to just yeah go there and be like what are these people talking about? No, it's it honestly does sound really interesting and it's a very good it's a very good description of how you guys ended up with this whole slang and, and everything that mm -hmm. you kind of you sort of all know between each other in pittsburgh like all of what it means and then the rest of us are just like what is this? A right. lot of us are completely ignorant to the fact that the rest of the world doesn't speak this way. <laughs> when I went to college sure. and people were looking at me like I had two heads when I said certain things like Jagger Bush, they're like, what are you talking about? I'm like, what do you mean? What am I talking about? A, a Jagger Bush. They're like, what is a Jagger Bush? I'm like, a rose bush, a thorn bush. Like, what, what do you mean? It jags you. You jag off. <laughs> <laughs> um, but there was actually, you don't even have to go visit. There's actually a great lecture uh, by one of the professors from Carnegie Mellon. She was a linguist and she did a deep dive into mm -hmm. Pittsburghese. And it's like this 90 minute lecture. It's fascinating. I've, yeah. I've watched it many times. Oh, yeah. It's it's really, 
it's it's really dumb in the sense that somebody put this much energy in trying to get to the root cause of uh you know the, this adaptation of of the english language mm -hmm. but it's really fascinating because it still exists yeah mm -hmm. <laughs> we just refuse to change that's funny we should do a we should do a whole thing we'll do, do like a bit on the podcast where i have to go to pittsburgh and you have to go to like london or somewhere in england and oh, try, to, try to navigate your way around I, I feel like that would just like bring out my spirit animal and maybe just be wet and groggy and gloomy it, all of it might but i'm just curious how you would experience london since you once described it as la east and i was like <laughs> if you'd been to london you would know that la and london do not have much in common so i'm curious how you'd experience it did i say la you did i, I you, feel like you I definitely would, did i feel you like were, i should have said you were New trying york. to make fun of it and i was like no that doesn't work yeah it's, it's probably, just, probably like, closer it's to not, not a thing. Probably closer to New York. Yeah. Much closer to New yeah. York. Yeah, yeah, I would think it would be um, more like New York. In terms of the city just thriving off of foot traffic more so than, than cars like LA does. Like you can't even drive in the city of London, you know, so it has a lot more common, a lot more in common with New York. Like for sure. actually literally cannot drive? Yeah, there's or? a congestion charge. You have to pay like quite a lot if you want to take your car into central London. And it's like they introduced it like 25 years ago and it massively cleared up the... the ridiculous traffic situation in london so it's like is the city that small that it's uh, very very dense not... that's okay. the thing like the in comparison to american cities yeah it's small but it's the biggest city in in most of europe right right um it's it's just super super dense and so there's there's so much um movement of people around that if you allowed everybody to travel by car, it would just be chaos, which is what happened in the 90s. Or it like, would just be Manhattan. Man, it's, yeah, it's 15 so. euros per day. That's People pay like 25% uh, more of that in New York. Just to, just mean, to go through the tunnel. Yeah, like the tunnels yeah. and like the bridges and stuff. Right, yeah. but even just that, like it, it completely transformed London overnight when they introduced it. it, um, it it's a much better city now than it was 25 years ago. Oh, so what you're saying is in London, they're nits. I guess <laughs> well, there's, there's also just like it's a there's a massive density of working class people who live in London right but they kind of the opposite you know, of Manhattan yeah I guess yeah. so that's the thing like there's there's it's so dense that people didn't want like if you paid the congestion charge every single day to drive to work suddenly your 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 salary's cut by 20 percent right you know so like people started taking the the tube and this is when public transport really expanded and stuff like that so it did a lot for London, but yeah, for for that reason alone, but also for a ton of other reasons, London is nothing like LA. Yeah, yeah. I, I don't know why I said LA. In I think my it's head. just because you hate LA and you just assume you would hate London, so you just no. Like, I put actually them think uh, I think of all the European cities uh, that aren't like destination getaways. Mm -hmm. uh, I think London would be like the top of the places that I would actually. Yeah, enjoy. You, I, honestly, I, I can't imagine you, it's very different from I, here. Yeah, I think you you probably would uh, you probably would enjoy London more than you'd enjoy certain other European cities. Like I think somewhere like I don't know somewhere like Rome, you probably wouldn't like that much because it just Man, it's I love such Rome. a different pace of lifestyle. It just doesn't seem like it would vibe with you very. I think very I would like Rome. Well. I think I would dislike uh, Biza. No, no, well, no, Biza would be <laughs> fine. That's, no, that's where, not even a city. That's an island. Where, let's move perfect. on. Which which uh, which Italian city is the one with the the gondolas and the ben, ben, Venice? Venice, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah I don't want to give a bye bye water, man. Like that's too. A water is not your thing. No, uh, not okay. at all. Okay, interesting. Not at all. Then you might not like London because it's right on the Thames. Yeah. I was like... <laughs> Yeah, to be honest, most European cities, or like a lot of the biggest European cities, have some kind of water running through yeah, them. That's, that's kind of how they became kind of how big works. cities. Yeah, right. exactly. So you need a water it's, source. It's sort of hard to find a big European city that is actually fun to go to that doesn't have any yeah. water nearby. But literally, like Venice is like 
soaked in water. Oh, yeah, it's like floating <laughs> on the water. Right. Yeah. yeah, I don't right. mind. Uh, let me make a correction. I don't mind water. Matter of fact, I enjoy the, the three rivers and the confluence and the point and everything else, but I don't want to actually have to take a water taxi anywhere oh, yeah. I go. Well, that doesn't, that's not a thing outside of Venice. Like, yeah, yeah, that's, that's, that's why I think Venice right. would be low on my list. Yeah, mm -hmm. um, beautiful city, though, from what I've heard. I've never been there, but um, if it's anything like Rome, it's beautiful. Yeah. I like, I like getting into like specific cultures of cities. Like New York is almost too big to experience the, mm -hmm. to like get the full experience of the culture. Uh, you, you kind of just know it going in. If you happen to go to the Met or, or something mm -hmm. major like that, it's, it's, it's a good experience. But like Pittsburgh's small enough where you can kind of experience it all. Uh, in 25 at, minutes on a scooter. That's not true. You're an I did idiot. It. You don't. I did it two days in a row. What are you talking about? You have less culture in your entire body. What are you talking about? I did it two days in a row. I went all around Pittsburgh. You drove around the north side. It. You know what I'm excited for? Shore. I'm going to go check out the um, Roberto Clemente Museum when mm. I'm there. I haven't been there. I heard, yet. It's, I heard it's amazing. Yeah. yeah. Well, I don't think we understand like how lucky we were. Our field trips were to like the Carnegie Science Center, the Carnegie Museum, the Historic mm -hmm. Museum. Uh, we have like a uh, a pretty rich art culture with right. um, the Campbell Soup guy. Why am I forgetting his <laughs> name? Campbell Soup. Andy Warhol. Yeah, yeah, Andy Warhol was the born. Campbell Soup. Guy. He was born and raised in Pittsburgh. <laughs> he's the Campbell. <laughs> you make it sound like he was in a commercial a, for yeah, Campbell Soup. Yeah, or something. like he invented like, Campbell Soup. <laughs> he made it famous, man. Uh, he did he make it famous. famous. He really did. Like once he came out with that drawing, I think their like cells went through the roof. And I now think. he has the privilege of being known as the Campbell Soup. That's guy. right. Yep. Well, yeah. look, man, I've I, been could, to the I couldn't remember I've his been name. to the Warhol Museum. It's, it's really cool. Yeah. yeah, I've been to it as well. Mm -hmm. um, I couldn't remember his name. You guys got it immediately when I said the Campbell That's Soup true. guy. That's what do you true. want from me? <laughs> you got us there. You know, ah, pop art. Uh, no, come on. Campbell Soup. I'm curious about what uh, what's the population of Pittsburgh? Because I honestly have no idea. It depends. I mean, if you're talking about just the city limits, it's mm -hmm. probably under a million. It's probably like 600,000. Yeah, I would like guess that. like 500. Yeah. Uh, it, it's, it's weird. The, the way the city is structured... Uh, it's almost like the greater Pittsburgh area, if mm -hmm. that makes sense. Because the downtown and the North Shore, I, I imagine, would be like the bulk of what you would consider to be the city. Mm -hmm. um, but it really kind of just like spreads out in a, a weird metropolis. Like you can go all the way almost, I would say like almost to Monroeville would mm -hmm. be like you don't really hit a I suburb. I thinking like Fox Chapel kind of area. I mean, that's, that's north. This, this would be like further oh, yeah, south, yeah, yeah, yeah. right? It's all mm -hmm. part of Allegheny County. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's so all. Allegheny. There's 1.2 million in Allegheny County. That makes and sense. In Pittsburgh City, Pennsylvania, is that it? Yep. Yeah. 302,000. Wow. 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 That is okay. oh, that's really small. Yeah, me too. That's that's interesting because I, I don't know if you you sort of recognize this, but if if the population of Allegheny County is 1.2 million, that would make it. If it was a city in England, it would be like the third or fourth biggest city, maybe even second oh, wow. biggest after London. Yeah, it's like the not the, even top ten here. Right. The the way that the population of England is concentrated into London is something most people just don't really know. Mm -hmm. And like London's like eight million, and then the next biggest city might be like Birmingham or Manchester at probably like one point five, one point eight, something like that. So there's just a, a massive difference between London and like any other city in England specifically. No wonder it's they shipped everybody over here. Yeah. There's I mean, more land. Right. <laughs> we don't have a lot of land. We, we really don't. We it's, got a lot of it here. Yeah. A lot of empty space. Plenty of, now plenty grow of, me corn. Yeah, right. You got plenty of states over here that's like like Wyoming. It's like there's the lowest population uh, density. Let's, let's not get into the flyovers again. No. It's, it's a yeah. big mess. Mm -hmm. 
Everybody gets offended when all, we talk about. All I'm saying is you got a lot of open space, and there's a lot of uh, a lot of things you can do in this country that you can't do in England because there's yeah. not enough space for it. Yeah, that's sure. that's very fair. Uh, all right, let's talk a little bit about sports. sports. Very, are these going to be sports that I have any idea about? Probably uh, not. Right? Well, we're not actually going to be specific to sports, but. Okay. We do have a sponsor this week. Big shout out to Underdog Fantasy for being the sponsor of the week. Uh, unfortunately, their best ball challenge, or best ball mania rather, is now closed. Well, so, no. no. It looks like it's 99.2% full. It reopened? I'm looking at it right now. Well, the, the higher ups have told me that it's closed. But hey, if it's not closed, rush over. It sounds mm -hmm. like there might yeah. be a few slots or a few drafts left. Um... If it is closed, sorry, you snooze, you lose. There will always be next year. Best Ball Mania is going to be massive. Three million up top, 15 million guarantee, which is huge. Um, but don't worry. There are still other things that you can get into. Uh, Underdog has a pick'em game where you get to pick your favorite players and whether or not they'll score higher or lower in a stat total for this week's uh, game. So effectively, you will basically just be able to comb through uh, pick a handful of situations that you enjoy, uh, you know, betting on, be it the coin toss, uh, or, or whatever other stats you want to be looking at whenever you're talking about, uh, your fantasy players. And you can choose between two and five players to build a pick them entry. So this becomes a contest in and of itself, similar to, uh, how the best ball works where you're competing against others. Uh, it looks like this will be able to be utilized uh, with rival picks where you pit two players against one another. So in other words, you're playing head versus head uh, or head to head rather. Um, you can, for example, choose which player will have more yards. Uh, for me personally, I would love to get into this just so I can, you know, really show my, Mark, who, my black who, and gold. Who's going to have more uh, all-purpose yards uh, in the Steelers game, is it going to be uh, Christian McCaffrey or Najee Harris? Najee, block it, <laughs> block it. You heard it here uh, first. What is he like? Plus three fifty or something? Who knows? Who cares? Know. Doesn't matter. All right, I'll take I'll take McCaffrey. Okay, book. <laughs> but I'll be rooting for your side. Yeah, of course. Look, <laughs> it's going to be a one sided game, as they all will when the Steelers play ah, yeah. this season. Uh, we're gonna have the picket the pickens connection. Picket the pickens, picket the pickens, picket. Can, can I get a pick them for picket the pickens? Hey, there we go. Now we're talking. Now we're talking. This is uh, this is what I'm looking. It sounds like a pick off at an interception <laughs> for six points. Jump off a bridge. <laughs> the London Bridge. London. Uh, all right. If you guys want to be involved in the pick them uh, challenge, head over to Underdog. Is it underdog.io or underdog.com? It is underdog.fantasy. Oh, dot .fantasy.com. My bad. Uh, you can sign up today with promo code solve for y That's S4Y. And get your first deposit doubled up to $100. The link is in the description below. Or you can hit hashtag underdog in the chat. Um, you can also find the app in the app store. Don't forget to register with our code S4Y to get your first double up deponent. Must be 18 and over. President of the state where Underdog Fantasy operates. Terms apply. Uh, concerned with your play? Call 1-800-522-4700 or visit NPC, ncpgambling.org. Don't don't gen guys. That's what we have Conrad yeah. for. Okay. I, have a, I have a proposal for you guys. Right. So I, I'm thinking that. about how bad I would do if I tried to do like fantasy sports related to the NFL. Mm -hmm. oh, but man. then it occurred to me how badly you guys would do if you tried to do fantasy Premier League. Nah, right. So, yeah. 
Honestly, I, I feel like we would do worse. Well, if you guys are ever down for it, I, we can we can like swap, and I'll I'll do the fantasy NFL. You guys mm -hmm. do fantasy Premier League, and we'll just do a whole thing about it, and we'll enjoy how bad each other is. I, I think you would have the advantage just because you are living in this country, so you just probably hear things like oh, some osmosis. Uh, thing I, happening I literally where, where know, you, I know the names of like two or three NFL players. Yeah, so well, I, that's two or three more people in the Premier League. So oh, that's true. <laughs> that's true. But Fantasy Premier League is probably yeah. a lot simpler though, because the, yeah. the way they do it, it's first of all, it's free to enter. Mm -hmm. And you just like the idea is just to win these weekly prizes or, you know, season long prizes or whatever. Right. And then the, the other thing is that you can you can generally get a pretty decent team just by understanding that the way players are priced like they give you a certain budget to spend yeah and then you i don't know if it works the same here but like they give you a certain budget and you just have to fill up your team and for the most part the players are priced relatively accurately so if you just like balanced out your team by picking some of the right. highest value players mm -hmm. and then filling right. up the rest of the spots with lower value yeah. ones like you wouldn't do that badly right yeah, that's what most of, a lot of the drafts are uh, that's how it kind of works with nfl as well yeah, yeah. okay for, for some type of leagues yeah i mean here's the thing we would all suck at all of these sports. <laughs> yeah. We're just not sharp. Yeah, yeah that's true. That's true. But that's kind of half the fun. Mm -hmm. That's know? why I stick to that, We got to get a Circa thing in. We have less than 24 hours. Well, no, we have exactly 24 hours. All yeah. right, well. There's still, I think I saw today, there's an 800K overlay still. Yeah. And there, which, which one is How lazy are we? Very. Oh, we just got to go down there. Is there any way to do this online? <laughs> Zero. How much is the buy-in? I think it's 1K. 1K. Yeah. And you could put up to, I think, five entries. All right. Which one of you guys is going to be going down and getting us registered? We, we definitely need one to follow for the podcast so we can fight about who our pick is going to be. Because that's, that's a full day. That's a full day. That's great. Yeah. Yeah. That's, a beautiful, that's some beautiful content. Well, <laughs> the, I did a pick them. I used to do an annual pick them with Danielle. I can't remember what. <laughs> what league it was? It's just to argue? It's not a pick 'em. Sorry, it's a survivor league. Uh, mm -hmm. And I would do it with her every single year. It was like a five hundred dollar buy-in. Uh, <laughs> it was reasonably high to first, like ten k or something like that. Uh, and every year we would fight because she would want to take the fucking Browns at some point. <laughs> and like they're god awful. I swear to you, I swear, every year we've lost with the Browns. I, I couldn't, I'm like, I see a world where uh, she would say she wants to take the Browns just about every week. Just to fuck well, you only get to take them once. I know, but just to fuck with no, you. No, like, you only get to take them once, but it's just like there's no game on the schedule in the past, like, 20 years where you just look and you go, Browns are a fucking lock. That is true. And then it, on top of it, yeah. it was like, I wasn't allowed they never to pick played the, the Steelers. Jets. They never played the Jets at that mm. time. Wow. Real funny. <laughs> did that. Real funny. Funny. Conrad's day is coming. You're talking about your Super Bowl mm -hmm. winners. Yeah, yeah, just like when they signed Le'Veon Bell. Oh, a little quiet, are we? <laughs> oh man. That was that was so satisfying to watch him hold out for a year, get signed by a shit team for the exact deal that he was offered from Pittsburgh to begin mm -hmm. with, and then just go and flop. No, mm -hmm. it was not fucking satisfying. It was. Yeah. He said he regrets it. He's, but he does. he's recently come out and said that he regrets all of it. I'm sure he does. Yeah, that's what happens when you leave the best offensive line in all of football at that time. Mm -hmm. The system makes really. the man. You know what I'm saying, Lamana? You it understand. Is. I get it. You understand what's going on. All right, we have a couple things to uh, speak about with Poker News and Notes. Uh, first and foremost, huge shout out to Dean Eggs. He went deep in yesterday's GG WSOP 6 Max event. He got 19th. 
426k up top. Wow, so strong. A 5K. For a 5k 6 max. That, that's as big as the 5k 6 max live. Yeah. <laughs> Pretty close. Um, yeah. Pretty close. Yeah. I, I want to say the 5k 6 max live was Do like we know maybe how many 600. Entries? Yeah. We're in this nah, thing. but we could guess. Yeah. yeah. Uh, probably somewhere around 2,000. Wow, I had to guess. About right. Pretty, pretty nice. I think he ended up getting. Would you say nineteenth? Yeah, it was nineteenth. Yeah. Okay, unlucky. Good run, GG. What are you gonna do? Uh, speaking of GG, <laughs> we mentioned yesterday that they've decided to prevent Shark Scope from tracking <laughs> tournament results on their site, and we were kind of speculating as to why. Uh, they said it was for player experience and security. Player experience makes sense. Uh, People have a desire to remain anonymous, of course. Uh, security does not. It seems like it completely contradicts uh, security. Sharkscope actually is a pretty powerful tool at being able to suss out new accounts, multi-accounts, yep. uh, potential collusion rings, things of that nature. Um, and one Aaron Barone, a uh, 888 streamer, posted... A tweet yesterday it says gg decided to prevent sharkscope from tracking tournament results for the re reasons of optimizing player experience and increasing security when in reality those changes do the exact opposite <laughs> now that was in reply to a gg marketing tweet that said what's the funniest thing you've seen or heard at a poker table kind of kind of on point response there by aaron gg then takes it upon themselves to troll aaron oh boy and say Plenty time for more play dates at the park then. <laughs> Showing an image of Aaron and the poo emoji. Uh, kind of funny. Little out of pocket, I think. Uh, maybe not the best look for, for Gigi in a spot like this where I do think that people are right to question their motives behind uh, eliminating shark scope. Yeah. Like, for the life of me, I can't really see how this makes a more secure environment. The only... I don't, yeah, with security, I don't think it does, but I think it's worth pointing out that there are HUD tools that can give you like an instant view of somebody's shark scope overlaid on the table in the same way that a HUD does. Mm -hmm. So there's some element of like, if you're going to not allow HUDs like GG does, then it also through that lens makes sense to not allow shark scope because you can use, you can have shark scope HUD tools, but. Wait, but how if you're not allowed HUDs? Yeah, it's not going to be connected to GG, right? Well, I don't, I don't, um, I don't know for sure, but the the tools that the tools that do it are like I'm thinking of something that's I think it's called like Tournament Shark or whatever. That all it needs is the Shark Scope data. It doesn't need any hand history data from the tables. Mm. It just needs to be able to identify the players that are there and look them up on Shark Scope. Now I don't know if those tools already work on GG or not. I'm just pointing yeah. out that. Like, you could make one argument for getting rid of shark scope through that lens, but, like I say, from security, I, I don't think there's... I don't understand how that's supposed to increase security. I don't, I don't get it. Yeah, it's a, it's a strange... Uh, everything in this climate right now is so strange. <laughs> I, I don't want to over-speculate because I don't know what the hell is going on behind the scenes. Right. But, um, I don't know, man. There's just, like, so many grumblings about the collusion rings that are taking place. Uh, these app games are like really allowing cheaters to scale fast. And I think what ends up happening is that as they get kicked out of more and more clubs, the more traditional poker sites become targets next. Um, especially like a lot of these, like GG, uh, WPT Global and, and sites of the sort, they, they were once app-based 
sites. So a lot of them come with agents, right? And I think that, uh, I think having that layer of having agents who have some autonomy and some power over the people that are beneath them, or maybe not power, but like some insight as to like, uh, you know, how their accounts are being ran, how their money's are moving and things like that. I don't know, man. It, it just all seems like a very slippery slope when it comes to security and uh, oversight. <clears throat> I, I, I don't, I don't wish to be a part of that realm at all, as a player or an operator. It just seems like really complicated to to protect your pool at this point. Collusion uh, and, and cheating rings seem to continue to get more sophisticated. Detection seems to be always a step behind. Um, I don't know. It, it just it, it's tough. Like I, I wouldn't want to. I don't. I don't know how you shine a better light on online poker at this point. It's it just like the safest difficult. place to play is in a casino. I mean, I think it's always been the yeah, case. Yeah. I, I don't personally. I don't like the idea of having to go through a quote unquote agent to be able to play somewhere. Like I don't like the idea of my money has to go through some other person whose only job it is to to get me to come play. Right. right. Because if I'm playing live. I don't have to do that. I just go to the cage, get my money, and sit down. If I am playing online on a like a, a, a regulated site like WSP.com, sure, I have to use PayPal or something to deposit, but I'm not communicating with a person that I'm giving money to, and then that person is going to give money to the site as like a, a buffer between the site and me, right? So as soon as I, as soon as an environment requires me to to have some kind of agent that I'm that I'm operating with in order to play on that site, I'm immediately skeptical. Yeah, I, I kind of feel the same. Uh, that that layer feels easily compromised. Yeah, for sure. Because like, it just that the incentives of that individual person are going to dictate what ends up happening with your money. And and all of these instances in the past where people on Poker Bros or whatever have gotten scammed out of money, usually been because their agent has had a huge incentive to just steal everybody's money and disappear. Yeah, and I mean, this kind of brings us all the way back to, like, the Bryn Convo, too. Like, uh, I know he served as an agent for a big chunk of the player pool that came on there at some point. Again, I don't know, like, how much uh, authority or autonomy, like, somebody like that is granted. But, you know, we did speculate that there was probably a lot of colluding that went, went on from that hierarchy. And uh, it seems as though being an agent would only ease that process, not make it more difficult. Right? Whatever happened to four poker? No one knows. I mean, I'm sure someone knows. Actually, to that's what? a lot. I don't even. Is it, still, is it, Bryn's site. Is it gone? Oh, Bryn had a yeah. site. I think it still exists. Let me go look. Yeah, I, I imagine it's no still idea exists. About I seen, that. I saw like some immediate like uh, promotions, but then saw nothing. You can get. You can invest in it. Probably get a hundred <laughs> yeah. times your money back. Right. I'm sure. Really trustworthy investment. <laughs> uh, there was actually. Um, let me see if I can find the link. There was a a long reddit thread about how somebody uh had their funds taken or confiscated by one of their agents uh on gg uh, poker, poker reddit is a dark place though are we sure we want to go there i know <laughs> bro trust me <laughs> i'm aware i saw you went there recently to look up stuff people were saying about you we're so lucky the stream got cut man there were we we didn't even get to anything close oh, that's, that's what happened because i was watching that i was watching it back after and i and it just ended and i was like oh man they were just getting to the good stuff yeah apparently like there was a there was a reddit thread of melissa telling a diarrhea story that we <laughs> we were unaware of you're gonna make me choke oh, what the hell um but yeah i mean i think that 
Yeah, I guess like I only saw this in passing once, so it probably isn't worth me searching and finding because if it were actually a bigger deal, I think it would have probably made its rounds on Twitter. Uh, that's kind of, that's kind of the the layer that that's I the, use. That's the filtering process. Like all the the really stupid stuff goes on Reddit first, and then if it gets big enough, it goes from Reddit to Twitter. And once it goes from Reddit to Twitter, it might be worth taking notice of. But if it stays on Reddit and never gets to Twitter, you just you can just ignore it. Yeah, I I think that that's actually like pretty accurate. <laughs> right. Uh, things that are just insulated to Reddit just seem like uh they're not that worth invest investigating. Um, no offense to Reddit out there. You guys are doing great work. <laughs> it works are. with other areas too. Like that for, for everything related to like soccer news or wrestling news that I follow, like if it's on Reddit and it doesn't make it anywhere else, it's not worth paying attention to. Yeah, that makes sense. All right, we'll save uh we'll save the the GG agency stuff for another time whenever we have a little bit more information on it, but yes. let's get into some strat talk. Uh, we just wrapped up an academy last weekend and uh a lot of the emphasis was on two major points, pre-flop range construction and then uh, post-flop betting construction. And the two kind of go hand in hand. I think that this might've been the first experience that we've had where uh, that light bulb moment was so evident, where people began to realize that you can't just randomly choose what hands you play before the flop and then have some sort of strategy after the flop. Right. There was a lot of that on day one before we had kind of given them the guardrails for how to construct pre. So, uh, as far as range construction as a whole goes, why don't you give me a little bit of your, uh, let's, let's say your framework that you operate from whenever it comes to dictating how you're going to bucket your hands both before and after the flop. Sure. Yeah. So, um, obviously it's a really big question and I, (laughs) I'm conscious that somebody on Twitter said, make sure Hunt talks in layman's terms today. So I'm like <laughs> trying to figure out how I explain this without getting into any kind of technicality. But mm-hmm. in, in the end, it's, it's going to be influenced by a lot of factors. But I think the, the biggest one that a lot of players will kind of miss is just the influence of SPR and stack depth as a whole. Um, just because if, you, if you're playing tournaments like I frequently do, um, you're, you're going to be at so many different stack depths that your strategy just fundamentally changes whether you're you know, 100 bigs or 30 bigs deep, right? So if, whether it's pre-flop construction or post-flop, that's by far the biggest factor, I think. And then when you start to get into post-flop, SPR and, and how deep you actually are on the flop is going to influence things a lot as well because it's going to influence what your strong hands want to do, right? And when you're at a lower SPR, you're going to have a much bigger incentive to occasionally consider slow playing some of the top of your range because you can still get stacks in across two streets, um, but when you're super deep, you no longer really can afford to actually slow play because otherwise you just never stack anybody. So I think that that's going to be by far the, the factor that I'm going to think of first and foremost. Um, and then from there, it obviously it gets more complicated. Yeah, I, I think that, uh, you know, when we, when we start to introduce strategy to people who have kind of been firing from the hip or freestyling a lot, I, I think that one of the biggest things that I try to emphasize are those major principles that you can always default back to. What's the SPR? Are you in or out of position? And who possesses overall advantage based mm-hmm. off of the the situation that's arisen? Right. So how you've uh, arrived at this point should should often dictate that. Uh, this this strat chat today was kind of uh, inspired by Guapo last week saying that up until a few months ago he never even had a check back range. Which, wow, okay. personally, I can relate to. Uh, I'm uh, with you, Bob. <laughs> I still don't know that I do. You probably didn't check back a flop for like the first 10 years of your career. Right? Yeah, like I didn't know that checking was really a viable option once we aggressively put money in the pot. 
I thought the way we did this dance was, you know, I continue to bet and then you make a decision. Yeah. I mean, I guess for the first 10 years of your career, probably nobody ever check raised anyway. So maybe che never. never checking was probably good. My so. strategy for the first 10 years was so fucking basic. It was VPIP as much as humanly possible and just stay aggressive until they make an aggressive action back and then fold everything. I remember like the early, <laughs> early academies, it was like 5X open barrel until they fold. You yeah. Know? It was like, it was yeah. And if, like, they, if they ever, ever click it back just fold everything <laughs> if you don't have the absolute nuts with a redraw to the second nuts fold everything yeah. I, have, I have a csi go ahead steelers lose this weekend <laughs> i'm sorry what bosa just signed his contract for fuck <laughs> damn it. for five years is 170 million dollars with it. 122 guaranteed oh we were so close <laughs> make him the highest paid defensive player in history oh my god i'm sorry you can make, damn, you we make were so continue close. who's paying him 170 million dollars is it the, the kingdom of saudi arabia <laughs> <laughs> that's what that's what's happening in soccer right now yeah, like, yeah. what's that next tj watt contract gonna look like man all the money sorry all the money i need to just let you know you're gonna lose this well Sunday. we're still not gonna lose but that's definitely still gonna stay plus two i was gonna Steelers. say maybe go to plus three and now yeah, definitely better yeah, that's right um yeah but anyway uh basically paying attention to position stack depth and uh who who carries the advantage is a main thread line i i would say to uh trying to construct any sort of reasonable strategy even if you are freestyling right mm -hmm. like even if you're just arriving at a point and you're saying okay i need to figure it out from here we can still kind of look at those details and and make a determination as far as what hands our opponent does or does not have in range what actions are viable or not viable for his counter strategies mm -hmm. and i think that this is probably where a lot of people start to get it wrong is they get too and I don't, I don't, I don't know what the cure is for this, but they just get too overly invested in looking through the lens of their exact hand mm. and what the desire for that hand is, slash their own emotional desire based off how they've arrived here. Yeah, I say this because I see a lot of three and four bet pots play out where somebody has a hand that just like is way too good to bluff but way too weak to bet, mm -hmm. and they just end up firing on all cylinders for multiple streets. Right, they just take like. They take a hand that has plenty of showdown value and they just turn it into a bluff because that's preferable to checking and having to potentially face a difficult decision on a later street. Right, right. Like understanding that in a three bet pot, you're just not going to find a way to get nines to fold on seven, three deuce yeah. when you have ace king mm -hmm. is probably just like, well, I shouldn't say it that way. Uh, what I should say is like, you're not going to get nines to fold on seven, three deuce after you see bet they call. And then the turn is another deuce. Mm -hmm. Like mm -hmm. that's not, that's not really what we're attempting to do here. Yeah. Right. We'll just happily take the value against nines when we have over pairs and put them in difficult spots. But like, we don't really need to have more bluffs than value bets. Mm -hmm. Uh, just simply because we know that our opponent has pocket pairs a lot. Right. Sometimes and you're just subjected to the run out. Yeah. And I think, in addition, one thing I kind of noticed from this recent academy as well, probably more so even than, than usual, this is something we always see, but it was more pronounced in this academy, is people getting very wrapped up in trying, basically just trying to mind read, right? Trying to look at like the metagame and say, okay, well, what is my opponent thinking? Or what is my opponent thinking about what I'm thinking? And just trying to go levels and levels deep. But the, the foundation of any strategy is all the objective stuff, right? All the stuff that is factual, like what position is each player in? 
how how deep are we like what are the stack sizes what's the spr what's the exact flop because you'd be amazed how often i have students say to me like oh the flop was like i can't remember if it was a64 or a63 or a, like i can't remember if it was two clubs and a diamond or or whatever else and i'm like that stuff matters like you you can't just like forget what the exact flop is because that really is going to actually have an effect so um all the objective stuff the the stuff that is factual and cannot be disputed you have to start with that stuff before you you go into like all the different layers of of leveling wars and things like that and, and trying to win pots that you shouldn't win based on what you think your opponent is thinking and all those things well it kind of speaks to the fact that uh when you don't get the objective stuff right, it's because you're paying attention to the wrong things. Right. Mm -hmm. So when players come and they're overly focused in the meta, they're really just trying to cope, I think, with not having a strategy at all. Mm -hmm. So they're just trying to create some fairy tale where the actions that they took make perfect sense based off of the reactions that they were perceiving from their opposition. Right. And it's completely dismissing and ignoring the actual objective data that we have in front of us, which will be positions, stack depth, flop texture, uh, you know, how many bets went in before the flop. All, all these things are going to help contribute to what ranges are actually arriving at the decision point that we're trying to make. Yeah. And I think whenever we're looking at range construction, uh, starting with preflop is imperative, right? Mm -hmm. And it's not even necessarily that important that you operate off of playing a theoretically correct range like i don't care if you're mixing opens under the gun with fives or not like <laughs> if you open fives pure you open fives pure just study that you know like use those ranges whenever you are uh actually analyzing spots and and taking a look um you know maybe maybe lookup databases aren't the best for this because you're kind of subjected to their ranges uh, I do think it is important to get to the point, especially with how simple it is to use like GTO Wizard AI now. Yeah, I was just going to bring up Wizard AI. Like I've been, I've been working with it a bunch for a course I'm, I'm putting out soon on the site, which, you know, promo for that, I guess. Um, but the, the way that you can run a sim, tweak the ranges a little bit, and then run it again in the space of like 20 seconds, mm. it's such a powerful learning tool because... You can change the ranges in whatever in whatever way you you think is necessary. You can you don't have to go through a whole process of of taking you know maybe half an hour to run the solve like you do in in PO or something else. And you can get a really quick at a glance view of like well if my opponent opens a little bit tighter what happens if my opponent opens a little bit wider what happens and uh, there's just a lot of value in in understanding that and changing one variable and just seeing how it affects the outcome. Along those lines, let's uh, kind of discuss the more specific question of when do you protect your range through a checkback? Mm, yeah. So uh, I'll give you a few scenarios, mm -hmm. um, all of which will be will be beginning with post-flop play. Sure. Uh, so let's start with single raise pots. Mm -hmm. When should we be concerning ourselves with having a checkback range? I think that almost invariably it's going to be in situations where we expect that our c-bets are going to get raised at a an uncomfortable or an inconvenient sort of a frequency mm -hmm. so any board texture where our opponent possesses a lot of different types of hands that could theoretically check raise immediately that gives us much more incentive to have some checkbacks and then the the flip side of that is it's all about what portion of our opponent's range we can actually target through bets and if our opponent has a lot of auto folds you know if the flop is 
ace deuce deuce um then you know they're going to have a, a huge portion of hands that just don't interact with that board at all and are going to have to fold to almost any bet size so those are board textures or those are situations where just betting range is going to function really well but as soon as you get to the point where betting range is going to now put you in a position where you just get raised a lot or you just have to really be um concerned about a certain portion of your range not wanting to get check raised that starts to be the the territory where you really benefit from having some checkbacks and a lot of the time it's going to be when you're deeper but it's also just going to be a question of board texture it's going to be you know boards where there's a lot of hands in your range that are going to get way worse across multiple streets you know if you flop middle pair on queen eight five two clubs then you can recognize that your middle pair is pretty likely to get a lot worse uh, across multiple streets and a lot of the time that's going to mean it, it starts to favor wanting to check back so I, I think in as a general policy i'm just looking at it as do i have is there any specific region of hands in my range that significantly benefits from from not getting raised here and as soon as the answer to that is yes it's it's a spot where you you have to consider having some checkbacks and, and start to think about what they would be yeah i think that uh you touched on a few key points there but first and most importantly i think is identifying interactions so mm -hmm. i think the notion of being able to see when your opponent's range interacts heavily with a board texture versus not very is a really critical time to understand that you need more protection in your range yeah uh one spot that stands out in my mind uh when i was doing on second thought a few seasons ago that that maybe i didn't recognize was a lower frequency bet board is like king 10 7 rainbow mm -hmm. uh button versus big blind yeah that's a board texture that i would have assumed had a low checkback frequency somewhere in the neighborhood of like 20 percent. it's mm -hmm. actually much closer to 50 right uh which means that you need to start finding the checkbacks with king x with 10x uh, that's just because you get check raised so much because it's, there's so it, many draws available it's mm -hmm. partly because you get check raised a lot it's partly because you just don't get folds very yeah. often yeah that makes sense yeah that's and, what it comes and you down don't have to three street hands right it's what it comes down to on those boards that a there, there aren't very many hands in that spot unless unless we're talking like a tournament spot where there's an ante and they're defending like all the offsuit ace x there aren't really really a lot of hands in that spot that are going to have tough spots versus let's say a small bet and even versus a medium or larger bet there are plenty of hands that are just always going to have enough equity that they they aren't going to consider folding and the size that you would have to bet in order to get like a gut shot to start folding on those boards or like a double gutter or something it's so big that now it just becomes like you can't use that size because you would just run into two pair or better like way too often right so mm -hmm. it just becomes a situation where you can't bet super huge and you can't bet really small so you can bet kind of a medium-ish sort of size, but as soon as that happens, now there's plenty of hands that don't want to bet that medium-ish size, which means you have to start checking them. Yeah, uh, and along those lines of having a protected checkback, I think the way that you can functionally frame that is just understanding, can I get three streets of value often, right? right? So even a hand like, let's say, king nine suited on king 10-7, it feels like it's a hand that very comfortably can bet three times. Mm -hmm. But the truth of the matter is that by the time you're putting in that third bet, it's really difficult to start to find hands that comfortably call you that are worse, right? You block some of the 10X that will probably have easy calls in 10-9, uh, and you are opening yourself up to just getting called by better King X. And like, even in this like in low stakes environment, like 
Those 10Xs go in the muck a lot in the third street. Right. So mm-hmm. it's just like. Yeah, they don't they don't find the indifference points. Yeah, right. They just rank the hierarchy of like yeah. top pair, no? Okay, yeah. then fold. They go yeah. in the muck on the turn sometimes. Yeah, yeah. you know. It's, <laughs> yeah. It's, so it's like, I don't know. Put you in a weird spot. Yeah. Mm-hmm. The notion of like having a delayed C bet in situations where you just don't have a lot of flop fold equity is really critical. Now, mm-hmm. I think people take this a little bit too far where they try to simplify things to either it's a range bet board or it's a range check board. And I think that that yeah. becomes a bit problematic. Range checking in position is, is wild to me. It's like I, I would never really do that. Like I think that you could maybe make the argument that in some tournament ICM situations, like you could, you could possibly justify it. But the, the reality is in virtually every single spot, we're going to have a top of range portion on every board that wants to bet. Like, so there's just, it's hard to imagine any kind of a scenario where our range would be constructed so that we just never have any really strong value and we have to check everything. Okay. So going or or kind of following up a little bit, then when do you check the trap? Because I think this is a big misunderstood thing. Like if that board is instead King 10, nine rainbow Mm -hmm. and your heads up versus the big blind, how often do you check back queen Jack there? Or what is the scenario where you would consider it? I think it's when SPR gets lower, you have to consider it more. Um, But it's also when... When you have hands that are, uh, when you have hands that are blocking the stuff that they're trying to get value from. So, on the king ten nine, I think having like top set is a better check back than queen jack in that spot. I think that just because queen jack happens to be the nuts doesn't mean that you have to check it back at some frequency because the reality is that its EV goes way down on a lot of turns. Mm-hmm. But with a hand like top set, it's going to have similar EV to queen jack to begin with. But a it you know, it does lose to a lot of straights on a certain amount of turn cards. So, you know, there's that, but it also makes full houses and can stack a hand like Queen Jack when it does. So I think there's, there's a lot to be said for deciding based on how vulnerable a certain hand is, uh, how it's going to play on turns and rivers, and uh, to what extent are we blocking the type of stuff that we're actually trying to get value from. Because when you do have a set of kings on King 10-9, and a lot of money goes in like you're it's odd to stack a worse hand but it's easy to run into queen jack whereas when you have queen jack it's really easy to stack a worse hand because all that king x is now unblocked and so you just run into stuff like king 10 and things like that a lot so um at at deep sprs i i would you know be very rarely be be slow playing anything but when you do start to get to shallower sprs and start to think about checking back certain hands in position uh, I think it just has to be, it has to be stuff that, you know, just has, has those properties, has a lot of blocking power. Uh, it's going to improve on some later streets as opposed to just getting a lot worse. Um, so straights, probably much less in that category, but sets two pairs that have the ability to boat up um, and also have blockers, like that's a little bit more of a, a good candidate region, I think. Yeah, I, I don't think that there's a real strong desire to be slow playing in cash very often because right. SPRs are just too deep. Yeah. I think you need to be at like SPR one before you start considering checking back like top of range. Wow. Even that shallow? Like you wouldn't, you wouldn't check back, let's say, I don't know, I'm trying to think of an example. Like the, the top set of kings is a, is a decent example, but like I feel like when we're, at, when we're at SPRs, when we can still get stacks in across turns and rivers, like yep. so villain is just going to like 2e turn and then jam river a lot like you you don't think that we would still sometimes check back a set of kings just it, because we block so much that just barely ever happens in cast though that's like in right because well, well i'm speaking to like for the, spr to be like call it three or four 
which would be a scenario. Sorry, that I should I should have clarified. I was talking more about the, the like the not so much the cash bots because I completely agree about those, but I just mean like SPR three or SPR four as opposed to one, right? Like so, because you said it would, it would take one SPR before you start like slow playing. I think before that, I start slow playing top range, yeah, I think like SPR four um, on like King ten nine for example. Mm -hmm. uh, I, I think that like checking back top set of kings is very very viable and very reasonable, but mm -hmm. I would have to be against a really good opponent. Okay, so right. we're starting to think in terms of exploitative. Yeah, I mean, I can get I can get behind that for sure in the sense that I think a lot of players just don't they don't bluff it off enough on turns and rivers for us to actually benefit a lot from. And, and not only that, turns. but uh, I would assume that so what obviously kings blocks top set, but it unblocks all of their potential bluffs. Yeah. So like, really, all it takes is them having a jack in a card that's anywhere near the board to have a potential bluff candidate. Jack mm -hmm. eight, jack seven. Um, you know, jack and a pair, things like that, for us to ensure that we get two streets. And I'm not confident that those hands always follow through from the bluffing region once we check mm -hmm. back. As a matter of fact, we might just leverage more folds. Um, I would have a strong check back range in those spots, but it would be more like ace king, I think. Oh, interesting. Would, would like play as a better check back or king queen, perhaps. Uh, as like that's now blocking a lot of their potential bluffs it interferes twice it interferes with the straight and it interferes with the top pair so it's just kind of like uh it's also a more vulnerable hand you know like you'll happily play for for stacks but like you're not super encouraged to do that yeah i'm just thinking like with the lower sprs i'm thinking in terms of our or what what i kind of observe a lot of the time is our more vulnerable hands like our, our range construction starts to like invert a little bit right where yeah when we're deeper SPRs, we have a much more polar construction where top of range and bottom of range is going to be more likely to bet. Mm -hmm. As we get to lower SPRs... That inverses. Yeah, it's like yeah. a weird thing where a lot of our middle strength hands now have reason to bet just for pure protection and for equity denial, mm -hmm. while we start to not have enough equity to bet with the very bottom of our range, and we just kind of want to like check back and delay... And the top of our range wants to slow play just a little bit more. So that I'm kind of basing a lot of this on that. And that's probably the reason yeah. why I I would probably pretty rarely find a check back with Ace King on King 10 9, but I would be more inclined to like a, a hand like Kings or maybe King 10. I might find it a bit more. Um, yeah. but I I think it's probably pretty close either way. And I think there's a lot of a lot of opponents against whom they just don't bluff enough once you check back, so you just shouldn't really slow play anything. Yeah. Yeah, I, I I guess to your point, um, if they're finding like a lot of the the backdoor bluffing candidates that would otherwise have folded to like you know quarter pot, um, you know a hand like I don't know five six of spades on king ten nine rainbow one spade probably just check folding versus any c bet. Mm -hmm. But if you check back now, that becomes a viable portion of their yeah. barrel offs if they get like the four spade turn. Yeah, I mean that's that's certainly a big part of the principle of why we would check back some of these hands, or in fact, really with with almost any hand, even with some of our like bluff catchery type stuff, like checking back like a weak king on on king ten nine. Part of the reason why we do that is because it's supposed to be the case that our opponent is going to bluff it off on turn and river with some hands that are way behind us, right? Like they're supposed to have some turn bluffs that are really low equity. Like they're just kind of bluffing because they have to have enough bluffs. Yeah. If, if they don't do that, and if they only start to bluff with hands that have a bunch of equity, then the value of, of sort of trapping in that way goes way down because we're, 
we're not even making as much money as we normally would by bluff catching. So it starts to become more important to just focus on getting the value in the first place by right. betting. Right. I mean, anyway, the, the, the major takeaway here is that SPR is going to be the big driving force between sure. checking back top of range versus yeah. just front loading it. 100%. And I think that's really important to understand. People, I think, are too afraid to play check back whenever they're really deep because it caps them. Mm -hmm. But you're also reducing the amount of streets that are played. Yeah. So if you're an SPR of like 12 and you play check back, it's really hard for your opponent to get the money in, even if they want to. Right. Right. So... By capping your range, you don't suddenly just become subjected to playing all in pots mm -hmm. with like, you know, top pair good kicker that you checked back to protect your range. And even if you do, that's okay. You're still going to have the same properties as if it would have come through a small bet got called or whatever. If anything, you're in a better spot because their range is now wider. Yeah. And it's also this, this weird kind of paranoia that people have where they, they check back because they're afraid that their opponent will recognize that their range is capped and just target them like mercilessly and just sort of put them in all these tough spots but eventually if if it was if it was the case that your opponent was just going to auto blast off as soon as you check back the flop then you should just start doing that with everything yeah because, right. like, check they, back the nuts and then just yeah like, exactly it's like at, at a certain point yeah. if you recognize that this would not be a good spot to check back the nuts inherently you also have to recognize that you don't have to be that worried about checking back middle mm -hmm. strength hands right because if you're not going to induce massive amounts of bluffs by checking back the nuts, then you're not going to induce all this crazy aggression by checking back a middle strength hand. You know, so it, right. people just get this this paranoia about how their opponents are going to play, and they just think, well, if if I check back the flop, that's quote unquote weak, right? They don't want to show weakness, and that's just not a that's not like I, I don't like the phrase that's not a thing, but like showing weakness and showing strength, like those things are not a thing. In that, you're what you're showing is a range and if you have a well-constructed range, that range is not, neither going to be too strong nor too weak in any given spot. The reason why people are worried about showing weakness is because they recognize that they only ever do that thing right. with a very specific range of yeah. hands. Mm -hmm. And so you intuitively recognize that your range is very weak and you just want to avoid putting yourself in that spot. And the answer isn't to to just take lines that don't show weakness. The answer is to actually construct your ranges properly. Yeah, and I think this is what Guapo was saying about how like I don't have a a check back range. I think he was more more saying that I, he didn't have a protected check back range. Right. Right. And it's, yeah. it's 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 not that he just never checked. Well, I think his terminology for it is actually better because what it means is that he hasn't built a check back. Range. Right. Right. Exactly. Mm -hmm. Exactly. So it's just like w when he did check back, it was just it was an unprotected weak right. range. Just pure give up. Basically. Right. They or should like, blast off when mm -hmm. if they yeah. recognized what he was doing. Mm -hmm. But not anymore, right, Guap? That's right. I think conceptually, this is a very important thing that people kind of don't get right and, and need to better understand. But every time you take an action, be it bet, check, fold, whatever, you are constructing three parts to a range. Mm -hmm. And I think it's really critical for people to think in these terms, even if only for a short period of time until they have it solidified. But like every single time you're about to take an action, you have, uh, you have other ranges that would have taken another action. So in other words, like if you have this flop texture of King 10-7, you both need to build a betting and a checking range. You don't just get to build one, right? Right. It's not, I build my betting range and then my checking range by default is the inverse it's of that. It's just everything else, right? right? Yeah. It doesn't work that way because now you're very exploitable in the checking range. And I think a, a, a really good way to conceptualize this is to understand that anytime you're in a defensive tree, you are actually building a folding range. Mm -hmm. And you could start with that because 
it's okay to build a fold range and then have the remainder of your ranges be everything else because now you're just compartmentalizing through different tor tor uh, portions of equity and figuring mm -hmm. out if you're going to play them passively or aggressively, right? But essentially, you're always going to have a passive action and aggressive action available to you on any street, regardless of if you're in position, out of position, the preflop aggressor, the preflop caller, whatever. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, ancillary to that will always be a folding range. When you face aggressive action, you will always have to build a folding range. And people don't think of it like that. They just make the decision to fold based off of this, that, or the other. Yeah, 100%. They, they're not preempting any kind of future aggression. Like, they're acting as if it's impossible that their opponent could put in another bet. And then when it happens, they're like, oh, shit, I didn't expect that. You know? Right. Um, and it, this is how you end up with people doing stuff like cold four-betting queens and then finding a fold to a jam right. in a circumstance where it's like, well, the jam can just be ace-king a lot, so you mm -hmm. can't really fold. It's because people didn't know what to do in the first place, so they just cold four-bet, and then when they face the jam, they weren't ready for it, so they just end up finding a fold somehow, right? And I think the, the idea of constructing a folding range is really, really powerful because it, it hammers home the idea that in order to give your opponent some incentive to bluff, you have to have some folds at every point in the tree, right? You, you can't afford to be in a position where you just never fold a certain line because then your opponents no longer have any reason to benefit from, from bluffing, right? So you just, you get to a point where they can play pure value and you're just giving them all the value because you're never folding. So you have to, if you start with that folding range, if you start by thinking, well, I'm understanding that I have to have, uh, I have, to have a range that continues on the previous street and then is willing to fold to further aggression on this street, you're going to be able to much more easily construct your range from there because you're not going to get into these positions where either you're just always folding every single hand because obviously that's bad, or you're just never folding anything, right? So yep. constructing your folding ranges is actually a really good starting point. It also helps you strategy. or forces you, I should say, to uh, identify the, the line of demarcation between uh, pure and mix. Right, like if you can look at a spot and say, like, well, I'm never folding top pair, that means that you know the, those hands aren't a part of your folding range and are always continuing, mm -hmm. which means that they're pure. And then you can look at something like middle pair and say, like, well, I'm sometimes folding middle pair if it doesn't have these certain properties, right. like a straight blocker or, or backdoor or whatever the case may be. And now you understand, like, that's the the point in your range where you begin to mix. So this is very critical because. What it will allow you to do if you start to identify where that line is drawn is not get confused when you're holding one of those marginal hands and just defer to fear. Mm -hmm. A lot of people will just be in a spot where like they have second pair, it feels very uncomfortable to do anything. And so they just take the conservative route and always fold it. But the truth of the matter is, if you're thinking in terms of like actual range construction, you'll recognize that you need chunks of the board always through every street. So we were talking about this at the academy, but the notion of when you're facing a bet on the turn, calling with a hand that intends to fold to any further aggression. Yeah. It's calling to fold. And that seems really foreign, right? right. But what you're doing is you're preemptively building out your fold range on the river. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And you're also putting yourself in a position where your opponent has to now be wary about checking back the river because they know that when they check back and give up on a bluff on the river, you have certain hands that would have folded if they bet. Right. And they're now allowing those hands to realize their equity. Mm -hmm. right. So if they 
under bluff the river, you massively benefit because those hands that shouldn't be able to get to showdown now do, and they win the pot at a good rate. And that, that really identifies what happens live is people do not call to fold. Right. They, yeah. they, they call always, to call. Right. They always say like, well, if I call the turn, I got to call the river. Right. right. Yeah. yeah. And this so, is why everybody always comes to the academy and says, well, people in my games never fold the river. Right. And it's because well, they folded they, a bunch on the flop. And exactly. Turn. It's because yeah. you, you, yeah. you like, once you get to the river, you five X it pre and potted the flop. Like, what are they supposed to fold by the time they get to the river? Mm -hmm. You know? Um, so it's definitely, uh, I think, a dynamic that yeah, we, we're kind of speaking a little bit more to out of position now because we're talking about building folding ranges. But you can apply the same logic for in position. You can start by building your checking ranges, right? You can start right. by looking at flops and saying, well, what hands on this flop want to check? And if there's none, if there's no hand that really benefits from checking, then yeah, range bet the flop. But there's going to be plenty of situations where it's like, if I specifically have pocket eights on ace, nine, four, or maybe not, maybe it's a bad example, but like if I have pocket eights on ace, 10, nine, like that hand really doesn't have a particular incentive to bet because all the worst pairs fold, a nine doesn't fold, et cetera, et cetera. So like now you start by saying, okay, this hand kind of wants to check. Well, what other hands kind of want to check? And you can go from there and really flesh out the whole range and arrive at a, a pretty reasonable understanding of what your checking back range should be. And then just bet everything else that's not in there. Yeah, and it's the same premise. Mm -hmm. uh, you're building a check range that has some checks to fold mm -hmm. to turn leads, right? And then some checks to raise to turn leads, and some checks that will call turn leads, right? So when you're comprising this check range, you have to be compartmentalizing the next street's three three part division. Yeah. So what am I doing versus a lead once I decide to check back? Some of my hands are going to want to call. Some of my hands are going to want to raise. Some of my hands are going to want to fold. Eights is a great example, right? I'm checking that hand back to fold to a bet unless I make an eight. Yeah. Then I'm checking it back to raise. Or I'm checking it back with the intent to check back again if I face another check, right? right. Like I'm checking it back for showdown value. Well, everything just goes up a pip if it checks you instead of you face the bet, yeah, right? So if exactly. you check to fold... Then you check to check right. mm -hmm. when you're checked to. If you check to raise, then you check to bet when checked to. Exactly. Yeah. And then you're you're gonna if you construct well through these lines, you're gonna find that you end up in spots where you actually do have hands that go when it check when both the first two streets check through, now you have calls, you have folds, and maybe you even have some raises. And one thing that I see quite often, and this might be more of a tournament thing, but when when both the flop and turn go check check. People, are, people have no folds on the river. Right. Like when, when you're in the big blind and it goes check, check, flop, check, check, turn, just don't bluff the river. Because ace, they, ace high always calls. Yeah, well, King ace, high ace, calls. Yeah, like anything. <laughs> they only that, have showdown value. Right, they, they, just, they just exclusively have showdown value. Yeah. Right? So if you're going to have bluffs in that spot, you now have to go with some absurd sizing. But for the most part, it's hard to size big enough that they ever actually start thinking about folding a showdown value. But you can probably get hand. thin value, though. Well, exactly. Right. That's the thing. Yes. Like now you can like value bet bottom mm -hmm. pair and stuff like that, right? Mm -hmm. So it, it, there's a weird dynamic there once it goes double check back. But when you actually do find the folds or you know, when, you're, when, you, when you're up against players that you know actually do have folds and you have to now think about, well, maybe I should have some bluffs here, decisions actually get pretty difficult, right? Because you, you start to get to the point where you have a lot of like, I don't know, nine high in your range, but you just, you're in, in sort of a little bit of an ambiguous spot as to do I actually bluff with it. So constructing checkbacks on flop, and it goes hand in hand with constructing checkbacks on turn as well, because there's, there's a lot of lines there that people neglect. People are only really willing to look at the line of what are my, you know, my double barrels, triple barrels, et cetera, but they're not 
thinking about what what the other lines are. They're not thinking about their bet check bet. They're not thinking about their check check bet. You know all that sort of stuff. And there's a lot of it's not necessarily low hanging fruit because it's tough to study these things and it's not easy to pick up on exactly what the dynamics are. But there's a lot of EV to be gained in those spots just from being better than other players at, at navigating those, I guess, um, depolarized lines, those lines where it's not just going bet, bet, all in, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a lot. It is well, a man, lot. When was the last time you uh, constructed a folding range? Uh, every hand I play. Yeah, he does it in his Consciously, <laughs> consciously. <laughs> does it in his consciously. Oh, consciously. Um, yeah. I mean, I don't know. Maybe, <laughs> maybe subconsciously. <laughs> okay all right yeah, yeah. I, th- I think it's important yeah. to like if, especially i don't know how much you're working with solvers or like with ai ai or anything along those lines but if you're not if you're not the type of person that is utilizing these tools very often then it becomes very important to uh conceptualize these things even mm-hmm. if you're doing it you know writing it out by hand or just doing the exercise once or twice is a really good way to get your brain trained to start thinking a little bit more visually mm-hmm. um and not just looking at your two cards whenever you're put into a spot but instead looking at the board and kind of identifying what your overall range looks like you know understanding what hands you open pre-flop that actually still arrive to this point and how you need to compartmentalize them understanding that like you know on certain textures if you cannot range bet then you do need to build a checking range and part of that checking range is hands that will check to fold you know just like part of your betting range will be hands that bet to check the later streets and realize that that is a funneling effect like when i bet to check it's only because i think i have a two street hand so i'm bet check back back bet check (laughs) betting back jet betting (laughs) bet check betting where uh you know the second street is going to be relatively thin value Mm -hmm. or i'm checking the turn with the intention to give up facing a river barrel um and and these are very important so it's how we construct our bluff catching ranges it's how we construct our bluffs it's how we construct uh you know a reasonably shaped range throughout the streets and if you're not thinking these way this way it means you're too hyper focused on your exact two cards Mm -hmm. and where they fall in rank order of your actual range uh delineation Mm -hmm. that's not super helpful Knowing that you're in the middle of your range isn't really all that helpful other than maybe you don't front load as much aggression. Yeah. You know, maybe you just naturally check the middle of your range more often, but it doesn't really help you if you have nothing from the higher equity tier. Like if you don't at least have some high equity draws to complement it or um, a hand that has high degree of showdown value but can't get three streets of value, that type of stuff. Yeah, I also think people have this, this tendency where the ability to bet and take down the pot at some frequency is is something that people are they really like having the possibility of just ending the hand so what they'll do is anytime they flop a draw they'll be like oh i have a draw if i bet i still have equity and sometimes they fold and so they start from the starting point of if i can find a reason to bet this hand and end then end the hand at some rate i'm going to do that and only when i can't find a reason to bet am i going to start checking and what that does is it continually just puts you in a position where the most uncomfortable spots which is the ones where you bet and you get called you're exposed to them over and over again and then the spots that you're not good at playing and you don't have a constructed range for like the the spots where you check back and you have to defend the turn and things like that you're you're naturally avoiding those spots so you're getting worse and worse at playing those spots and i tried to stress this at the academy that a lot of the time the the spots that people are trying not to get into 
they're doing it because they inherently recognize that they're making a bunch of mistakes in those spots. And the more you do that over time, the more you keep trying to protect yourself from those spots, you're just going to end up with this sort of like a callus in your game somewhere where you just, there's a, a leak that you have that you haven't addressed and you're, you're actually making mistakes on other streets just to protect yourself from having to actually fix that, that turn or river leak. And this is so, so common. People just don't want to play turns. They don't want to play rivers. And they build their whole flop strategy off of how can I justify betting flops more so that I don't have to play more turns and rivers? And it, it just becomes self-perpetuating like that. Mm -hmm. Conrad. Popping. The people want to hear from my sidekick. They do? Hi. They're desperate to. They're screaming, Conrad, tell us your strategy. What is popping? Bet more when you have the nuts. Mm. They will call. Pretty, pretty good but, strategy. But, but make sure you're black before you do it because, like, I don't know. <laughs> Uh, people, true, people never believe story. the black the guy. Academy, Conrad, <laughs> it's a true story. Conrad 3x pots the river with a full house, gets called by worse. And then on break, I go up to him and I'm like, Conrad, you're, you're fake action. And his first response was, what, what did you say? You were like, it's easy being black in poker or something. <laughs> <laughs> like, this man is convinced that his ethnicity is what gets him called on the river. Did you see the hands? I, I, did, have? <laughs> I did see. I did see the hand, but I also saw all the other hands Manish played. The man doesn't like folding rivers. No. So I like your three X pot, but I, if it's me, like I might have folded a flush there. <laughs> it I sounds like, done it against you, Hunt. Oh, it yeah. sounds like Conrad uh, is exactly what you just described, where you take certain or certain actions in order to avoid others. Yeah. We got to get you building out that fold range, buddy. Uh, maybe not your fake action. We got to get you building out that that checking and calling range. Mm. I got my I got plenty of check calls. Oh, tell me all about I, it. I live that life, man. Check call life. Check call. Check call. That doesn't sound like a fun life. No, I mean, it happens. It's not how I'm built. When you're always out of position, you know. Yeah, when happened. you never fold, when you never fold the big blind, <laughs> when you just defend a hundred percent of the big. What are you gonna do? Yeah. Just gotta get better at it. All right, all right, all right. That's gonna do it for us today. I hope you guys enjoyed Strat Chat. Thank you as always for joining us, Hunt. We appreciate your insights. Happy to be here, as well as the discussion on London, which is riveting. We're riveting getting you. To, we're getting you to London one day. Can't wait. Hopefully, there's a high stakes cash game there. <laughs> That's gonna 20. do it for us. There's a lot. Uh, we'll be back tomorrow at six p.m. We're gonna be joined by the one and only Nikki. Limo. Yep. She's going to be coming in. She claims she has a surprise for us and oh won't tell me what it is. Just oh sent devil horns Wait, with is it. it. Is it Limo, not Limo? I don't know. You, you said Limo. I was I like, think it, I've always said I think it is Limo, Limo as well. I, I say okay. Limo. I just, I, I mean, I've only spelled, seen it written down. It's spelled it limo. limo. It's spelled Limo. I thought but it was limo. limo. I thought it, I, I, okay, fair enough. This is, oh, listen, if it is Limo, I'm changing it to Limo for the same reason why I add S at the end of persons. And <laughs> yeah, you're, you're just going to change everyone's I'm not name. allowing people to have last names that are actually nouns. It's not, it's not fair. Well, mine is a noun. Hunt is a noun. Fair. It's also a verb. Well, it's more of a verb. It's yeah. both. <laughs> yeah. It's both. <laughs> anyway. You can call me Hunts. I'm going to call want. you Hunts from now on. <laughs> but then you just think about Wait, the ketchup. Hold on. Mm, is the ketchup no. not Hunts? It is. is it actually Hunts? It's hunts. No, it's Hunts. Okay. Yeah, there's a there's a brand. Okay. There's a, like a brand of something called Hunts. Yeah, think. it's yeah. ketchup. And ketchup I have to tell you, it's the shittiest ketchup. ketchup on the planet. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I, I have nothing to do with Their that. Their tomato sauce is good, though. I'm sure it is. Yeah. Because their ketchup tastes like tomato sauce. Nothing to do with me. I am not a ketchup guy. Well, maybe we get you in the arena. All right, guys, uh, that's it for us. We'll see you guys tomorrow evening, 6 p.m. Special guest, Nikki Limo in the house. We'll Limo. see you guys all then. Peace. Peace.